Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thank you all for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help me out by hitting the like or subscribe button. You can also help me out by sharing the show with a friend or a family member if they're interested in this kind of subject matter. So thank you again for being here. I am glad to be back and I do apologize for the delay. I owe everybody an extra episode but I was stuck with work travel and kind of trying to digest all the subject matter before I presented it. But we have a great show, I think, and the topic that we're going to discuss today is neurological conditions, but more specifically, depression. And the two companies we're going to talk about is Sage Therapeutics and Axome Therapeutics. And both of these companies have seen a lot of news lately. I was originally invested in Sage a long time ago, but did get out of it with a, with a profit, so I'm happy about that. But I do think there's opportunity in this space, given all the stuff that's going on. So we're going to talk about that. But first, there's been a lot of news, so I do have to go through some important things on companies that are relevant and important to me, so we're going to start there. And the first one is the Acosti failure. So Acosti is an omega-3 company, and they had their proprietary omega-3 drug that they were going to release results for in two phase 3 trials, the Trilogy 1 and the Trilogy 2. And they originally delayed the Trilogy 1 results, but then we finally saw them and the results were that there was no significant difference between placebo and treatment. And if you actually look at the data, a lot of it is due to this unusually strong placebo effect. So I kind of feel bad for companies when they do get this because it just leads to a huge mess and it's very difficult to interpret and it makes it very complicated for the, F the FDA as well. So I think if Trilogy 2 is a success, there is a chance for approval moving forward but this is definitely something that's going to be complicated to explain to the FDA. I think they announced that they're going to do an investigation, but the odds that they're going to get some kind of conclusion on certain sites that happen to have had, you know, maybe a mix-up in the placebo and treatment is possible, but we can't really bank on that. So the stock did suffer for that reason, but this is how it is sometimes. The next piece of news that we heard is that AstraZeneca, who also has an omega-3 drug, closed their strength phase 3 CVOT for Epinova. And this was due to the low likelihood of demonstrating a benefit for patients with mixed dyslipidemia. So both of these pieces of news are incredibly bullish for Amarin. And we know right now that Amarin is actually sitting quite lower than you would expect, given that two of the potential competitors are now out of the game. I think Amarin closed on Friday in the mid-18s, and a lot of that, I believe, is due to upcoming patent litigation that should be resolved in the next year, in the next six months or so. We don't, we don't always know, but the concerns of the patent need to be figured out, and then once they are, I think Amarin has a lot of upside to be realized, and I did explain this in previous videos, so I'm not going to get into too much detail, but Amarin should finally see its day in the sun, and I am going to add in the mid-18s if I do get the chance um, on Monday. The next thing I want to touch on is JPM 2020. It seems like there weren't any, any major announcements that happened. Nothing of note in any of the companies that I'm particularly interested in came out, so I'm not really going to talk about it. But I just had to mention that it seemed like, in general, nobody was super excited about it. Uh, people are disappointed, I guess, in the lack of M&A. I, I kind of hate having to talk about M&A because it's so hard to predict anyway, but that is, uh, that's basically what went on. Now, the next piece of news is this coronavirus that has since happened since my last episode. And, you know, I'm not going to repeat all the news stories, but basically we hear every day a new report of increasing numbers of people who are infected and increasing numbers of people who are dying from this. 
And my original impulse always with these kinds of scares are that it's an overreaction, but you never really know. And the reason why I say it's an overreaction is that the odds of a virus being in that perfect sweet spot such that it's not going to just kill you immediately, but it's going to be able to incubate in you such that you can transport yourself and infect other people while then causing major disease is very, very low. It really needs to be in this perfect sweet spot for it to become this pandemic epidemic that's going to really change the course of history. But, you know, you do. You never really know. And especially with these conspiracy theories that I've been hearing, and I'm not saying they're true, but I've been hearing this stuff out, you know, it could have been a potential bioweapon that leaked accidentally. The creation of something like this could, you know, could make it more likely that it is the big one. But I'm not convinced as of yet. It seems like you basically just get the flu and people who are elderly or very, very young are more susceptible to succumbing to this. So definitely be safe out there. Get your NIOSH 92 mask. Now, on the bear side, I am definitely concerned that we're listening to the news from China. And there's a chance that they're underestimating the numbers of infected coronavirus patients. Uh, we see that they built a new hospital in like six days or something. And we also see quarantining of major, major metropolitan cities. So for that reason, I think China is underestimating the numbers of patients that actually have it. And for that reason, it might be a cause for concern. We did see also that a number of vaccine companies have increased in value substantially given this news, but I think in the Ebola and SARS scares this happened as well, and they were eventually sold off in, in a pretty substantial way. So I'm not sure it's worth it to play any of these things. I think I took a look at one of the vaccine companies and the short interest on them was actually was astronomical, so it wasn't worth it for me to, to even try to do that. But that's the coronavirus. I think we got to keep listening to the news day in and day out and uh, go from there. Another piece of news that's been going around BioTwitter is the release of the Sarepta CRL for Golodearson. If you don't know the story, it might be worth it for you to go back and read some of the history, but basically the FDA gave Sarepta a CRL for their exon-skipping therapy Golodearson. So this CRL outlined specifically that the FDA was concerned that there was only a small benefit of Golodearson treatment. And this is something that was kind of withheld by the management when they released the press release for the Sarepta CRL. Now, what the management did release is they said that there was issues from the FDA regarding the delivery route, as well as renal toxicity, and the CRL did go through that. But it seems like most of the CRL can be explained for the FDA's concern that there is not, in fact, a clear benefit of Golodearson compared to the risks. So... That's kind of news that's been depressing the Strepta stock lately. The CRL also called out the company for not even initiating a clinical benefit trial for Edip Learson, which is now three years overdue. So I think it's nice to see the FDA actually using their power to keep companies in check. I think Sarepta has been getting away with not doing the work that they should if they are to continue to have a drug on the market. And I still think that the odds of them pulling Edip Learson is quite low but it is nice to see the FDA flex a little bit. Then the last piece of news I want to touch on is the approval of Palforzia from Amune. And we heard this on Friday, January 31st, after hours, and I saw the stock was up five bucks. But I don't want to be too excited because I remember when the stock was up quite a bit after the advisory committee, and then the Monday we saw the stock was actually down on the day. So I'm going to sell if, uh, if I do see that the stock is up around five dollars. 
there are some concerns out there about safety as well as how well the drug is actually going to get adopted by allergists, but I am happy to see that Palforzia was finally approved and I've been holding amine for quite a while. Now, before I get into our feature story, which is depression and the companies associated with that, I did want to do a quick little read-through of a Twitter thread that was provided by Opal Chip, who's somebody that I interact with once in a while on Twitter, and they provide very good content, so I think everybody should follow them, and I want to clarify uh, how this applies to my previous video where I talked about cassava sciences. So I'm going to read the thread. He writes here that, in his opinion, it's not about predicting science trial results. Real scientists can't do that, so how would some people on Twitter? It's about finding underknown stocks with high risk, high reward ratios, low financing risk, management credibility, and upcoming catalysts. Now, the things out of this that I love is this high risk, high reward, which I absolutely did not talk about when it came to cassava sciences, but it's absolutely the thing that you should be paying attention to. So when it comes to high risk, high reward, you're basing it on market cap, not share price, of course, and you want to know if the trial, if the catalyst, if whatever comes out positive, where is the market cap likely to go? And in the case of a failure, where is the market cap likely to go? And that's really one of the most important analyses when it comes to doing any of this stuff. I'm going to go through the other ones, but I'm going to use that specifically when it comes to cassava sciences in my next slide. So number three is financing. So how much cash do they have? How long is it going to be before they need to raise money in in most cases that means diluting their stock the next one he says is management and this can be a really big credibility booster and this is something we did see in cassava sciences so these are large open market buys by management and also you can see it when it comes to institutional sponsorship from these big firms and we see this when it comes to kodiak sciences for instance and baker brothers is a big stake in them so that provides a lot of credibility to the company and then the last one I want to touch on is upcoming catalysts. So we often don't want to hold a pre-revenue biotech very long because their odds of needing to raise money when they take too much time goes up substantially. So ideally, you want to take a position in a company before a catalyst. And given all these other factors, you can make your judgment whether or not you think it's a long or a short. So given that, and this is my interpretation, I'm not speaking for Opal Chip at all in this, but... I do want to make a quick clarification when it comes to risk reward regarding cassava. And I think their market cap is sitting around $123 million right now. And their net cash based on their last earnings report was $17 million. When it comes to the financing part of this equation, you can actually go back and see how much money they burn every single quarter. And this gives you a reasonable estimate in terms of their runway. So how much time they have before they're going to need to raise more money. And what you want, ideally, is a catalyst in between now and then so that it's worth it for you to take an actual position without them needing to dilute their stock and you lose money in that case. So if this catalyst does exist before this cash runway runs out, it's a, that's a check mark. Now, the next thing is if you have previous drug data in a similar area, and for Alzheimer's, we do. We have a number of jugs and we can see how much money they've actually generated in that time and it can be upwards of three or four billion dollars um, you can use that as an example to see whether or not your drug if it does get approved is going to generate revenue 
So say that our analysis predicts that cassava's drug is going to generate four to five billion dollars per year if the phase 2b is positive. This could obviously justify a substantially higher valuation than it has now and in this case it could be somewhere like one billion dollars. If we compare the current market cap to that one billion dollar valuation that's almost that's just under a 10 times increase and if the drug does happen to fail the market cap could go down to zero we'll say for example and if that happens then you lost your investment but the reward if it does go positive would be 10 times so this risk reward of 1 to 10 is obviously much higher skewed to the reward side so in that case it might be worth it to take a position so what we want in this game is to find opportunities where the risk reward is favorable and it can be realized in a reasonable time frame. Now, these other things that were mentioned, uh, management as well as an unknown company, they can also be beneficial, but I think the two major things out of this thread are the undervalued nature and the financing and whether or not there's an upcoming catalyst that sits in between that time. So I just wanted to touch on that quickly and uh, yeah, definitely give Opal Chip a follow. Now, let's get to the feature story of today, which is major depressive disorder. And for those who don't know, it is a mental disorder characterized by at least two weeks of low mood that is present across most situations. And other symptoms that go along with this include low self-esteem, loss of energy, loss of interest in normally enjoyable activities, low energy, and pain without a clear cause. And if you've known anybody with depression, it can be a serious burden. 17.3 million adults in the USA have had at least one major depressive episode, and that's about 7.1% of the population. The worldwide market is estimated to be $16.8 billion by the end of 2020, and most medications that are approved to treat this are actually generics now. So while the increase in market value seems to continue to happen, uh, the price of these drugs is probably going down and the sales are going down because there's many more generics that can be offered and undercut the actual brand name drug. The current treatments that exist today are psychotherapy, medications, and electroconvulsive therapy. I'm only going to focus on the medications though because that is the subject matter that we're talking about today. So the medications that are available, and there's a number of them, I can't possibly commit time to talking about all of these in this presentation, but choosing a medication is based off of multiple different factors. I've written them down here, safety, side effect profile, etc. And oftentimes, the doctor has to work with the patient to see what works best for them. And the reason for that is because the effectiveness isn't substantially different between the different drugs that exist today, but the side effects can be. So the major categories, we'll say, are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Those are your Selexas, your Lexapros, your Prozacs. And basically what these drugs do is they keep serotonin in the synaptic gap, which increases the signaling of these compounds to the neurons. And this does have an effect in preventing depression or reducing depression. Now, there's many side effects that are associated with these drugs, the major ones being sexual dysfunction, um, other more dramatic ones are suicidal ideation, as well as bone fractures. Now, the other drawback to these drugs is the response rates for the first antidepressant range from 50 to 75%, and oftentimes it takes six to eight weeks before you can actually see an improvement once you start taking the medication. Another category of antidepressant are these atypical antidepressants, and the one in this category I want to highlight is bupropion, which is also known as Wellbutrin or Zyban. And it's known as a norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitor and a nicotinic receptor antagonist. 
there are side effects associated with this drug, but there's also some benefits. And in particular, this one helps with smoking cessation as well as weight loss. So the way I see the market right now is there's a real opportunity in a drug that has improved efficacy. And by that, I mean the magnitude of the effect of these scores when it comes to Im improving mood. The other thing is fewer side effects. And the last one is less remission. So oftentimes these drugs they're given and then the patient does end up going into remission and that means a reoccurrence of a major depressive episode. So lowering the amount of remissions that occur could also be a big plus for a new drug. And now when it comes to major depressive disorder in the last year or so, there's been a lot of news that's come out. One of the positive things that has come out from that year is the Janssen approval of Spravato which is a one-off of ketamine, and it's a nasal spray that was approved for treatment-resistant depression. So this is good news. It does come with a REMS warning, so there's some caveats when it comes to whether or not this drug can be treated, but it is a big step up from really lack of treatment in something serious like treatment-resistant depression. We've seen also some failures. So Allergan had a failure with Rapastinol. Alkerms is a company that had uh, their NDA rejected. And then we also saw that Minerva Neurosciences had a failure in major depressive disorder in their latest trial. Now, two companies that have recently shown some interesting data, one is Sage Therapeutics, and I have here their market cap listed at $3.4 They saw a failure of Sage 217 in major depressive disorder, but the silver lining here is that they have two other phase three trials, the Redwood trial and the Shoreline trial, which are kind of one-off treatment regimens to see whether or not Sage 217 does have some effect there. Then the last company is Axome Therapeutics with a market cap rate now of $3.2 and their drug AXS05 achieved their primary endpoint in phase 3 for major depressive disorder and they plan on filing their NDA in the second half of 2020. So I'm going to switch gears and talk specifically about Sage and Axome and see whether or not there's a good opportunity for an investment here. So if we talk first about Sage, and I have covered them before, so definitely go back to one of my previous videos and um, take a look at that. That was more specific to Zulreso, which was approved in March 2019 for postpartum depression. So they do have a drug that's already out there right now, but the trials that are going on currently are for Sage 217. And this drug is a synthetic, orally active, inhibitory pregnant neurosteroid that acts as a positive allosteric modulator of the GABA-A receptor. And this receptor is also a target for benzodiazepines, and those drugs have been approved for various um, anti-anxiety indications. So the failure that they saw was in this mountain study, and I took a little deeper look into the data, and it's kind of interesting. The study failed at day 15, but reached significance at day 3, 8, and 12. And then they also did some post hoc analysis, which means, you know, they broke up the categories of patients based on all sorts of different things. They could do it by sex, they could do it by age. And what they found was that approximately 9% of the patients in the 30 milligram group, the group that has the actual effect here, had no measurable drug concentrations consistent with noncompliance in taking SAGE 217. If you exclude these patients from the primary analysis, this resulted in statistical significance at all time points, including day 15, which was the primary endpoint. So I'm torn here because on the one hand, we should not use post hoc analysis. It just isn't a convincing way to show your results. The FDA doesn't like it. There's a ton of reasons why it's not a good idea. But 
The other thing, too, is that if the drug has a non-compliance issue, that's a problem, too. Now, obviously, when you're dealing with any kind of mental disorder, especially something like depression, non-compliance is probably very common. So I wonder if they happen to have had more non-compliance with this drug compared to other types of drugs in the sectors. Now, when it comes to their pipeline, we see here that there's the SAGE 217 drug, which they're looking at for postpartum depression, for major depressive disorder, comorbid MDD and insomnia, as well as treatment-resistant depression. Then they also have a bunch of other assets that are looking at different kind of neurological things that are also relevant. But I thought I'd put this out there. And when it comes to the actual milestones that are coming through, they're actually going to have a meeting with the FDA to discuss a path forward for SAGE 217. And what they're going to do is talk to the FDA and see whether or not they can amend the already existing protocols with something new to probably take out anybody who's non-compliant and then only analyze those that have been taking the drug and taking it properly. So in that way, these other trials that are going on, these other big phase three trials, hopefully are going to have enough patients that take the drug properly so that there is significance there. So that's going to be interesting to see what kind of feedback they get, and they're likely to talk about this in their earnings call for Q1 of 2020. Now, there are other readouts coming, one for Sage 324, but I think what's really the kicker for this company is whether or not they can get Sage 217 for major depressive disorder because it is such a big space. Now, let's switch gears to Axome Therapeutics. And their lead candidate, I would say, which is AXS05. And this compound is actually an investigational NMDA receptor antagonist with multimodal activity under development for the treatment of major depressive disorder and other CNS disorders. Now, if you read a little further in, in the description, you'll learn that AXS05 is actually a proprietary formulation of both dextromethorphan as well as bupropion. Both of these drugs, which have already existed for a number of years. Now, what Axome has done is they've combined them together, utilizing what they call their metabolic inhibition technology to supposedly create a new drug that acts on both this NMDA receptor as well as the glutamate receptor in a way that is synergenic to have a bigger impact than if one or the other drug was treated by themselves. And the recent news that we heard is that the Gemini Phase 3 trial in major depressive disorder achieved its primary endpoint with this drug, AXS05. And this is what the data looks like. So this trial in particular compared AXS05 to a placebo. And the difference here in this MADRS score is negative 4.7 on the scale, and it reached a p-value of 0.002, which is significantly different. And they saw a difference at every single time point they analyzed, even as early as one week. And if you remember when we go back, we see that the current drugs, they don't really work until six to eight weeks. So seeing an effect this early is obviously an advantage. Now, when it comes to risks and the clinical milestones that are upcoming, one of the things that immediately jumps out to me is the novelty of the patent that's associated with AXS05. I haven't read the patent for it, so I'm not sure if it has any kind of weight if it were to be challenged, but I think it is a concern and it's something to be mindful of if in fact it does start to garner a lot of traction. The other thing is that this phase three trial only compared AXS05 to placebo and not to bupropion or to dextromethorphan. When I took a deeper look, the phase two trial that Axome did compared AXS05 to bupropion 
And even though it was only like a 100 patient trial, they did see a significant difference. So I don't think that's a big deal. The upcoming trial that's happening for treatment-resistant depression is going to compare AXS05 to bupropion. So in that way, you're going to get a real look at whether or not this drug has a real effect in treatment-resistant depression more than just Wellbutrin or bupropion on its own. It seems like this drug does have a substantial effect compared to just the bupropion on its own. And we also saw that an interim futility analysis was conducted in this trial, and it allowed the trial to continue. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to see a, an achievement of the primary endpoint, but it does suggest that there's a chance that it could happen. Now, just for clarity here, treatment-resistant depression is defined as people who are currently struggling with major depressive disorder, and they have not responded adequately to at least two different antidepressants of adequate dose and duration in the current depressive episode. And really, there's not anything super effective at treating this. The Spravato that I mentioned before has been approved for this reason, so it's going to garner a lot of market share because it does kind of stand alone as being effective in this way even though they did see some phase three failures. So what we're gonna look forward to in Axome is data from this treatment-resistant depression uh, trial, this Stride 1 top-line result, which should come in Q1 of 2020. They also have a trial for AXS05 in Alzheimer's disease agitation, and that's gonna come in the first half of 2020. And then we should see some top-line result for this intercept trial in migraine, but this is a different drug and I'm not really going to touch on that, but that should come in Q1 of 2020. So still a very rich pipeline and a lot of catalysts coming up for the company. So this is my verdict after looking at all of this. And really, both SAGE-217 and AXS-05 have improvements to current therapies. I think their effectiveness and their reduction in side effects would make them very attractive to physicians looking to get patients on a drug that might help them out better. And doctors are obviously the ones looking at patients and trying to manage their side effects. So drugs like this that could come out and substantially improve that, I think, would be really attractive to both patients and doctors. Now, I have here that the SAGE valuation is slightly more reasonable, but only if they can get the okay for the FDA for a path to approval. I think the market cap for SAGE dropped from around $9 billion to around 3 and change once the negative results from the Mountain Study were released. And that's because there's an expectation that SAGE 217 is worth something like $6 billion in valuation. So if they can't get the okay from the FDA, I don't think SAGE is a buy here. Now, Zilreso is approved, and they are starting to generate income from that. They've got $1.5 million in the first full quarter of sales, so you'll love to see that. But we got to see that continues to, to gain traction. Now, Axome has both this AD agitation and the treatment-resistant depression catalyst coming up. Both of them are going to be compared to bupropion, but it does, like I mentioned, seem that AXS05 has a substantially higher impact than bupropion on its own. And I also think that if the TRD data is positive, there's a major upside for the stock given the estimates for Spravato. And I've seen numbers like peak sales of $3 billion for Spravato. And given that Axome has a market cap right now of around $3 billion, TRD data would substantially increase the stock, in my opinion. And I think that the risk-reward, going back to what I talked to before, is definitely towards the upside. If the TRD data is negative, they still have a ton of catalysts coming up, and they are still likely to see approval for major depressive disorder. So the TRD would really be the icing on the cake, 
and I think that the stock would see more upside from that. So what I'm going to do, take a small position in Axome. I'm going to wait for Sage, though. I think it's too risky right now. And with that, next week, I plan on watching the saga of the coronavirus continue. You know, we hope that it starts to eventually die out, but the numbers continue to be pretty shocking. Another thing to be mindful of is that the Iowa caucus for the Democratic National Convention starts on February 3rd. If Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren happen to win, this is obviously going to be a headwind for the biotech sector. Both of these candidates pose a significant risk to the healthcare industry. So that's something to be mindful of. So with that, I'm going to do a quick portfolio wrap up as of now. And we did see some down days in the market last week. Volatility did increase quite a bit for the XBI. So some things that I'm going to do this week, I want to take a increased position in Marker as well as Axivant. I think they're kind of depressed unnecessarily. But otherwise, I'm down around four foreign change for the year so far, which is actually doing a little bit better than the XBI, which is down around 6%. But everything's been kind of depressed given this uh, coronavirus scare. So we'll see how that shakes out. But um, volatility has increased in every single sector. So you should expect a lot of wild swings as we move forward. But with that, I want to wrap it up. It's been kind of a long episode, but I want to thank everybody for watching and listening. Hit the like or subscribe button and tell a friend if you want to help out the podcast. And with that, thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you next time.